Good afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in to our website, godsredeemed.org, to watch this afternoon's sermon. We have these sermons recorded or publicized or in other ways transmitted through our website for the benefit of individuals, not only in the central Tennessee area where we're broadcasting from, but also around the world. And if you're joining us from someplace far away, thank you so much for tuning in to be a part of what we're doing here at Northfield Boulevard in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah, the seventh chapter, to a part of Isaiah that we are likely familiar with. And we're going to read three or four verses here in just a moment or two. We are only, count it, four months away from when people are going to be talking a lot about Jesus, about his birth, about Emmanuel. Because we know that in many cases, the world celebrates December as being about Jesus. And while the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus' birth in terms of when it was or the celebration of it, we understand that that's what the world celebrates. And so even though it's still a few months away, people will soon be decorating, people will soon be buying, people will soon be preparing. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us, even in advance of that, to think about Jesus. It's always good to think about Jesus and to think about particularly Emmanuel, thinking about Jesus and how he connects with us as human beings. Because as we understand in passages like Isaiah chapter 7, or as we read about Jesus' birth in the book of Matthew, that Jesus is God with us. When we think about Jesus, when we think about his birth, when we think about his life, when we think about his death, when we think about his resurrection, when we think about the totality of who he was and what he was about, they were, in many ways, all a part of prophecy. And that prophecy is outlined here in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, where I'd like to read just three or four verses, where it says in verse 13, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And of course, this was written some seven to eight centuries before it would come to pass, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings." Now, as Bible students, we know that Isaiah was dealing with issues that were relative to captivity and sin and the consequences of sin. But he provides a glimpse of Jesus. And one of the things that seems to be clear in Isaiah's work here is that the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, would have some sort of connection to humans. 
because he himself would be a human being and live for 30 some years uh, as a human and understand and be able to, in the words of Hebrews chapter 4, sympathize with us. And so I wanted to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, in light of what we just read in the book of Isaiah, and think about Jesus and who he was going to be and how he can better identify with us. In chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who, of course, is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the Christ, this high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest or an Emmanuel who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this particular prophecy of Jesus being the one who is going to be God with us is fulfilled not only here in Hebrews chapter 4, but in the record of the life of Jesus, which we're going to reflect on today by looking at Matthew and Luke primarily, as well as some other passages. I want us to make three or four quick observations about who Jesus was and particularly the things that Jesus would know that helps us to better appreciate his human connection, that he understands you, he understands me. One is that Jesus would know hard work. You know, from the outset of the life of Jesus, he was associated with what we might call the poor side of town. Go back, if you would, to the book of Luke, and I want us to read some a series of about six passages together uh, this afternoon. But go back, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 2, and I want us to begin reading in verse 6 of the text. Luke 2 and verse 6. And again, this is a passage that will likely be read, quoted, and seen more in four months than in any other part of the year. But it says that it was while they were there that the days were completed for Mary to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds. So here we are in a manger, no room for them in the inn, in the company of poor shepherds, keeping watch over their flock. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, Again, highlighting the poverty and the poor side of town with which Jesus was associated, a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. As we develop the story of Jesus further, we find out in Mark chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, that Jesus was a carpenter and was likely trained to be a carpenter. 
compare that upbringing to the idea of living in a mansion or some fancy house. The fact is, is whether it be Buckingham Palace or, in fact, one of these pictures, if you're able to see it, on the right side is a former palace of none other than Saddam Hussein. And I thought that was interesting to look at one of the many palaces of these great leaders of people in the past or people in the present. Jesus was not associated with any palace. He was not associated with any uh, uh, beautiful place to live. Born in this farming community in the midst of shepherds and sheep, can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine the smells? Can you imagine the atmosphere of his birth? Jesus' father, a carpenter, Jesus likely trained as a carpenter. Read it if you would in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where we see the record of this. And it says, he went out from there and came to his own country. His disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him, they were astonished, surprised uh, as to what they were hearing. Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is it that he's been given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Where did he train? What seminary did he go to? Uh, what uh, what uh, fancy Jewish council did he ever be a part? Was he ever a part of to learn these great things? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? They actually identify him as a carpenter the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. And so they were actually offended at him. So Jesus is associated with hard work. He is associated with blue-collar life. He is associated with everything that is but a king and that which was fancy or perceived as important in this life. There's a second thing that I think it's important for us to acknowledge, and that is Jesus would not only know hard work, but Jesus would know sorrow. You know, it is the case that ancient kings, whenever people were sorrowful, they were not allowed to be around the monarch because he did not want to be influenced by the negativity around him. And so there are accounts in the Old Testament, whether it be Nehemiah or whether it be Esther, where individuals were a little bit nervous about appearing before the king uh, because they were not as happy as they should be, because everything should be rainbows and butterflies around the king. Well, Jesus, the king, was well associated with sorrow. And we could spend 20 minutes just looking at passages that talk about the sorrow that he had to endure. For he was well acquainted with sadness and tears. I want to just look at four passages real quickly in Matthew, Luke, and John that prove to us that Jesus knows what it's like to lose friends, to face death, to face the death of individuals who are around him. First of all, in the book of Luke chapter 13 and verse 34, this is a passage that has always struck me as Jesus looks over the physical city of Jerusalem that would reject him, that was already in the process of rejecting him, and that's where he would, of course, live his last days. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you should not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have this picture of Jesus almost in tears, or perhaps actually in tears, lamenting over Jerusalem. Or in Matthew chapter 13, if you go back two books in the New Testament, in chapter 13, look at what Jesus had to experience in his hometown of Nazareth. You know, when you go back to your hometown, especially if it's a smaller town or a small community, people that know you're like, it's really good to see you. We haven't seen you in a long time. You sure put on some weight, haven't you? Those kinds of things transpire. But Jesus goes back to his hometown and look at the treatment that he receives. Look at the reception that transpires here. He says that they were offended at him. A prophet is not without honor, Jesus says, except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus here is rejected in Nazareth. Fast forward a few pages in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and I want us just to uh, highlight a couple of passages there where Jesus is rejected by some of the closest friends. You know, friends are supposed to be there through thick and thin, we say. Friends are supposed to be there to help you, to vouch for you, to stick up for you. While he was still speaking, verse 47, behold, Judas, one of the 12, the 12 closest individuals to Jesus, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Verse 50, Jesus responded famously by saying, friend, why have you come? And of course, they laid hands on Jesus. Drop down to verse 55. In the hour, have you come to me as with a robber or as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple. You did not seize me. But all these things were done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then Matthew records, I've always thought, an interesting statement. A, a, a statement that he himself wrote about himself and about his other friends, that we all forsook him and fled. And then in John chapter 11, perhaps one of the most famous instances or the most familiar instances that we have with Jesus and sorrow, where we find that one verse that is so easy to quote about Jesus weeping. It says that Jesus groaned in the spirit. Jesus was troubled in verse 33 and asked where they have laid him. They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And then the people who were him. Again, we could spend a lot of time talking about all the proof of Jesus's sorrow, of the sadness that he experienced. But why is it found in the New Testament that Jesus sorrowed as much as he did? I'm convinced that among the reasons that the proof is given is to provide us proof or evidence that Jesus cares. We sometimes sing a song, does Jesus care? 
And then we say, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior Jesus cares. Because he had sorrow. You know, if Jesus would have lived his entire life in bliss and everything had gone swimmingly for him, it would be really hard for him to identify with us. But as we already read at the outset of our study in Hebrews chapter 4, he is able to sympathize with us because he knows the difficulties with which we have been associated. Let me suggest, thirdly, that Jesus knew something else that helps him connect with us and helps him to truly be Emmanuel, and that is he knew temptation. And please mis- don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus did not know sin. He was a perfect individual, and he never sinned. He is without sin, and he's the only person who's ever lived or who will ever live that will be without sin. But Jesus did know temptation and had the opportunity to disobey the Lord. Jesus lived a life of perfection in spite of being tempted to sin. I want to look at two passages, one that is very familiar, Matthew chapter 4. But I want to start in Hebrews chapter 5, a text that continues that line of thinking where we began in Hebrews chapter 4 a few moments ago. In chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then notice verses 7, 8, and 9. Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son... Yet he learned obedience. If a person learns obedience, he has to, number one, know the difference between right and wrong, and secondly, have an opportunity to do right versus wrong. The obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by the God as high priest. Again, according to the order of the ancient priest and king Melchizedek. So obedience is a learning process. We have to learn that. I'm reminded of a young mother who works with her child by saying, you need to learn to obey. Remember we talk about trust and obey. We sing that song. So you've got to obey God. You've got to obey mommy. You've got to obey daddy. You've got to obey your teachers. The fact is, is obedience is something that we have to work at. Jesus While he maybe didn't have to work at it to the degree that you and I did, he did have to learn obedience as an obedient child of God, and he was perfect in that obedience. Which brings us then to Matthew chapter 4, which is a text that you are likely familiar with. Matthew chapter 4 is a, uh, in some ways, it's a beautiful text to read, But in some ways, it's a difficult thing to read because you see the treatment that is uh, 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 transpires with Jesus 
on the part of Satan. We're not going to read those 10 verses for the sake of time, but you are familiar here that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, and the text says that he was hungry. And so Satan comes to him, the devil approaches him and says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. I'm not going to give in. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from this pinnacle of the temple. Jesus says, I will not do so. You should not tempt the Lord your God. And then the devil takes him up to a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. For it is written, you shall only worship God and him alone you shall serve. Jesus was confronted by Satan and tempted to sin. And this is a controversial thing, even among the brotherhood, where some people uh, maybe debate whether or not Jesus could have sinned. But I'm here to submit that Jesus could have on any occasion given in and said, you know what? I am hungry. I will turn these stones to bread. If Jesus was immune from sin, it makes it so that he would be immune from identifying with us as Emmanuel, the human connection. And so it provides us with the opportunity that when we face temptation, we have a savior who says, you know what? I was able to deal with temptation and it was tough sometimes because I was really hungry. I think that's the reason that Matthew 4 verse 3 tells us that he was hungry is because we want to realize that he was dealing with a a significant uh, issue here. But he says, you can do it. Which brings us to the compassion of our Savior that he knew and that he knows today. If there was ever a compassionate, gracious, kind individual, it was Jesus Christ. I love just searching for the word compassion in Matthew, Mark, or Luke particularly. And you will find on numerous occasions where Jesus had compassion. Sometimes the word compassion isn't used and we still see compassion exhibited on his part. But let me just look at four passages with you before we close out this afternoon. Two in Matthew and two in Luke. While you're open to the book of Matthew there in chapter four, uh, drop down to chapter 15. We're familiar with miracles of Jesus and the way that he performs those miracles. But why does Jesus perform miracles? Well, to prove that he is the Christ, uh, to show his love, to take care of those in need. Those are all appropriate reasons. But one of the reasons that Jesus performs miracles is because he is a kind and loving and compassionate individual. And so in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they've continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And of course, this is a famous instance where Jesus feeds 4,000 individuals. And I love just the way that Matthew records the statement made by Jesus, where Jesus says in a very simple way, he says, I feel sorry for these people. I have compassion for these people because they are hungry. And I'm afraid that if I send them away, that they might get sick on the return to their homes. 
And so as simple as that may sound, there's something beautiful about the phrase, I have compassion on them. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29, beginning, this is uh, another instance where Jesus uh, provides a miracle. In 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude uh, a great multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men were sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out and they said, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now notice how the multitude reacted in verse 31. We can say a lot about these next couple of verses. But verse 31, they warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Not very compassionate, is it? So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And there it is, verse 34. Matthew, by way of the Holy Spirit, records for us that Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. When others fail to have compassion, Jesus steps up to the plate and says, you know what? I care. I will be gracious. I will be loving and I will heal. The same has to be true for us in a world filled with so many people who are void of compassion. We have to be individuals who say, you know what? We'll be compassionate. It's sometimes difficult being a Christian simply because we are dealing with other people's needs. But we are, according to Galatians chapter 6, not to grow weary in well-doing, including in the way that we show compassion to others. Two more passages, this time from the book of Luke. And these are ones that may or may not have come to mind to you. Uh, There are other places to read about the compassion of Jesus. But in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, notice what is written. It happened the day that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, who was also a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, what did he do? He had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still and said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he was dead, who was dead, sat up, began to speak, presented him to his mother. There are certain passages that have always struck me as being... Maybe not so much humorous, but can you imagine what it would be like being there? I love the way that it is worded in verse 15, by the way. So the dead man sat up and began to speak. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be standing nearby to see a man sit up and start speaking after having been dead? It's the kind of thing that you would remember forever. But the bigger picture here is of the Christ, the Savior, who is compassionate. And then it brings us to Luke 23. The word compassion is not found in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. But I believe that this is an exhibition of compassion. 
more so than on someone who is hungry, on someone who is blind, or on someone who is dead. This is the compassion that impacts us. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then in the greatest show of compassion, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That same kind of compassion that Jesus had on the thief who was penitent hanging near him on that cross is the kind of compassion that God provides for us today. I believe that when the word Emmanuel is used, it is truly God with us such that God is able to commune with us, he is able to fellowship with us, and he is better able to understand us. Jesus is the human connection. Through his hard work, through his sorrow, through the temptation that he endured, and through the compassion that he showed. That is a story or an account or a message of hope because Jesus still is with us when we work hard, when we endure sorrow, when we face temptation, and when we need his compassion. And those are things that you may be enduring today. And it may be that you need the greatest sign of compassion, the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins. It may be that you've watched today, having listened to numerous sermons and other Bible studies, perhaps on our website or other places, and you've been putting off becoming a Christian. And we are here today to implore you, to beg you, to plead with you, to not put it off anymore, but rather to say, it's time for me to confess Jesus as the Son of God, to repent of my sins and to be baptized. And we are ready to help you. We'll baptize you any hour of the day. You can contact us at our website, godsredeemed.org. And so if we can help you either in becoming a Christian or perhaps if you'd like for us at Northfield Boulevard to pray publicly or privately with you, to work with you, we want to have compassion on you the same way that Emmanuel did and does. Thanks so much for watching today. We bid you a very pleasant day and a great week.